Welcome to the Original Doll. I am your host, James Rodriguez. For the first-time listeners, welcome. For those that are returners, welcome back. On the Original Doll, I unpackage music with the people who create it, so you get to hear exclusive interviews with producers and songwriters about the music that they helped craft for our icons. And at the same time, we give back to charity. So every question of guest answers, we get items donated to those in need. So make sure that you go back through other episodes and take a listen. We might have talked about one of your favorite songs, including some deep cuts. Big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Thank you for your support. Everyone else, it does cost money to keep this up and running. So thank you so much. For further information, go to www.theoriginaldoll.com. We also have merchandise, the official Original Doll merchandise, as well as merchandise from the Britney Spears brands and Janet Jackson and more. Go to the website, www.theoriginaldoll.com. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording, ripping, stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you do in fact see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster. Now we're going to get on to our three sections of this episode. My name is James Rodriguez, and this is The Original Doll. Up first, we're going to talk to Tiffany Red about her work with Jennifer Hudson, Zendaya, and more, as well as the nonprofit 100 Percenters. We're going to get right to it. And remember, if you do have any questions for future guests, go to our website, www.originaldial.com. And if you scroll down to the bottom, you can leave a question or even a compliment or a letter of love to one of your favorite songwriters, producers, and artists. Now, here's my interview with Tiffany Red. My name is James Rodriguez, and on here, we talk to music creators about their music, the career, and advocacy for songwriters. And for every question you answer, we get items donated to charity. So for every question you answer, we get items for women at the domestic abuse shelters we work with. We get items for homeless LGBT teens and more. So thank you, first and foremost, Tiffany, for spending your time with the original doll. Oh, that's so dope. Um, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh my God. I'm excited. I'm excited. And I'm excited wanna... <laughs> too. <laughs> well, and it's funny because a lot of people are like, what's that behind you? This is one of my walls in my office and it's a Britney Spears wall. So I started collecting from like her first single album era all the way through, all the way down. Yeah, I was everything. wondering what all of that was. Vinyl. Wow. And the vinyl, I'm a terrible weatherman. <laughs> the vinyl is on this side. The vinyl, but, right. Yeah, I have my Janet wall over here because I love Janet. Do not play with me. Janet Jackson is one is is my favorite artist of all time. Okay, and so I I wanted to ask you. I'm like Tiffany. Why have I not seen your name on some Janet? She's working on an album right now. So Tiffany, who do I need to talk to? to get I don't you know who you need to talk to, but I will tell you that I would come out of retirement because I haven't written for for any artist in a while. I would definitely come out of retirement for Janet Jackson. My favorite song is That's the Way Love Goes. It's my my first, the first album I ever owned was Rhythm Nation when I was like little. It was my first like cassette tape. I was, I was Janet Jackson for Halloween. Like she's definitely the artist that I feel like if I ever met her, I'll probably embarrass myself. <laughs> I I think everyone would. Make it stop. 
And so when I look at like even your credits, you, whether it's Zendaya, Cassie, you know, some people say BOA, BOA, you know, all these people that you worked with, Jennifer Hudson, like mm -hmm. I said, there are some, Jennifer Hudson, Tamar Braxton, I've had their fans reaching out and saying, please ask Tiffany about this. Please ask <laughs> Tiffany when we're getting some more music. And I'm like, uh -huh. okay, people. So what <laughs> I want to do, what I want to do is I want to take you all the way back. I want to ask you, how did you get involved in music and how important was music to you early on? So, like I said, my first uh, album was Rhythm Nation. Uh, I don't remember how old I was when I got that tape or who gave it to me, for honestly. But I remember listening to it, like, on repeat, like, over, you know, how you just, like, hit rewind. This is, like, the 90s. So it's like... <laughs> and, the, you know, to play the song back and shit. You know what I mean? So you hear, like, I'm a little bit of it. I'm trying to look for my Rhythm Nation cassette over here. Cause like I said, this is Janet Wall. Cause I'm going to be like, there it is. I'm still looking, sorry. But yeah, but that, uh, yeah, that there was something special about that though. Hitting that button and going And when you hit that right spot and it started right at that And pause, it cuts right at the, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I did it. <laughs> I did it. Yeah, that was definitely my first album. Um, I did a little bit like singing and stuff like that in the choir and church but I didn't like grow up singing I grew up listening to a lot of um a lot of music though like I loved um Brandy and Blackstreet and Maya and I mean I was just I'm a millennial like a classic like you know I'm from the east coast so like in high school, I was listening to Dipset and DMX and Lil' Kim and like, you know what I mean? I was just like a Pharrell, just round the way girl. You know, my family is from Philly. So I just was like, this is what I listen to. Um, but since I was 12, I started writing like poems and stuff like that when I was 12. I've always had like a journal. Um, and I've always just like written stuff down, like it just in all my notebooks. Um, and so I did like a lot of like creative writing um, in high school, like did like, you know, um, I participated in like their like poetry club and like all that kind of stuff. I did well in English, um, but I wasn't a very good student. I was always fairly bored, honestly, um, and always in trouble. <laughs> Hence how I started the 100 percenters. <laughs> Sis Ben turned. <laughs> I was about like, to see. I saw that coming. I saw that coming. <laughs> oh, yeah. My parents are like, yeah. <laughs> She's been protesting since she came out the womb. <laughs> this tracks. This goes along with it. That makes sense. <laughs> oh, yeah. She's been protesting fucking string beans. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> just no. <laughs> Yeah, I've always, you know, been that type of person, like personality-wise. Um, but yeah, like I didn't necessarily grow up like doing music. My, I was around it a bit, but I wasn't like, you know, I didn't grow up in it, but I was always writing. And so when I went to college, um, I did a year at um, this community college called Camden County College in, uh, in South Jersey. And I didn't, I never went to class. <laughs> like all I did was hang out in the cafeteria with my new friends. We would play spades every day. <laughs> we played spades every day. And it was so weird because I was just at this like 
I was at this community college, but I had all of these new friends who all did music randomly. So like there were all these like singers around me and like musicians and like, I don't know, it was just like this random group of people that I met at this college this one year. I was there for criminal justice and forensic science. I like, um, yeah, I like crime, I like solving things. It all goes together. It's so weird. Like all of my like passions and things I'm interested in have all like finally met. They're all like, you didn't you're, know you're like you're like we're going deeper than the transparency i know she did it and here's the proof and if you want here's, here's, the, here's the record the spy okay i have notebooks all over the place you see this notepad this notepad has things on it <laughs> i um and so my first year of college my only year of college actually um i met this group of of, of friends that were all like musicians and I had one friend who I used to play spades with every day his name is Blair and he was like yo Tib like why don't you try to turn your poems into songs and I just was like what and then we went to the um, auditorium in the school and he just like played like the piano or whatever and it was the first time that I had ever like come up with a melody and we wrote a song called forever in a day and it was like it was literally like how you see the movie, like light bulb moment. Like Tiffany got fired from every job she's ever been at. She was a C student. Like this was like, I'm just here to party. And that's it. Like, I'm not motivated to do anything. I don't care. This is boring. Right. But when I wrote that song, it was the first thing that I ever wanted. I'd never, I had never like, like it was just like discovering my passion for real like it was like the first time that I was like oh my god and once that happened I was obsessed like that was in 2019 by two I mean not 2019 2000 wow I was like wait if you're that age do I have your permission to be on this podcast not 2019 2006 hold on I'm thinking about two this was in 2006 and in 2007, I was living in LA already. So like, it went really fast. So wow. like, I discovered music, I loved it. And then I went for it. <laughs> like, so um, I started to read like the credits and stuff. I've always read the credits. I just didn't know who all of the people were. I didn't necessarily realize that I was interested in all of that stuff or that I was paying attention, but I was. Um, and so, I started, you know, uh, pursuing music I was working with. That was when MySpace was popping. So I was like, I met like producers and there's some producers that I met on MySpace that to this day, I'm still friends with. Like, wow. yeah, we met and like, you know, so I was getting beats from producers on MySpace and I was like recording at my cousin's house in Brooklyn. And like, I mean, it just was very <laughs> DIY. <laughs> I love um, this. Very DIY circa 2006. Um, and I, at that time, this is like a very specific story. At that time, Omarion had just released O. There was a song on that album called Midnight. And I was like, who the hell did this? I love this song. And so it was the underdogs. And so that started my rabbit hole of the underdogs. So then I'm like, who the hell are the underdogs? So then I looked them up and then I'm like, wait, they did all my favorite songs. What the, f like, who are these? And so I started to like pursue, I just pursued it. So I found their website. 
and I just clicked on three people. I didn't know who any of them were, but I just clicked on three people. I sent them my little demo that I recorded in Brooklyn and one of them responded. And here we are today. <laughs> That's insane. Cause that doesn't, that doesn't happen. That does not. It does happen. It you, did. It happened. That- that is insane because it's like you're, you're you're like oh who's this because that's I think what a, a lot of the listeners and myself early on especially if a, a group a production group is just like a title I was like wait who's the clutch who's the underdog you know what I mean and then it's like wait right. is it this person and then you go through I'm like trying to there's so many people was, yeah and that's when you used to crack open that cd and you would look and go through and go oh sometimes they would have the lyrics in there but I think what is awesome is your your story right here makes sense it's like hey i'm doing my due diligence i like that music i mean i'm gonna what do i have to lose what do i have to lose by because it's like there's the forensic in you i i know you got married june 16th 2004 i know i know this you had you know there's some law things in here sir i know this i know your favorite order from mcdonald's is x y and z like this is this is the tiffany that i imagined in my head that was doing research I love it. Well, and then the thing is, is I've always been the kind of person that shoots my shot in life. If there's a boy I like, I tell him. If there's a movie I want to go to, I see it. If there's a, I'm a, I'm an impulsive person naturally. So like, I, I'm the person that's like, I bought a new car. Like I, when I got here, when I, I just recently moved to the back to the East Coast, and I bought a new car while I while I was here, and my dad was like you didn't tell me you were going to buy a new car. I was like, I don't need to tell you I'm buying a new car. But I just popped up with a new car because that's just my energy. Like, you know, if there's something that I want to do and I like, once once I decide, like, I want that, I have to at least try to get it. I don't always get who gets everything they want. But like, you know, I think that somebody answering, I mean, first of all, the person, be clear, the person who emailed me back had that job for like two weeks <laughs> like they didn't know what they were doing <laughs> like be clear it was like, <laughs> like the person checking the info amazing. email you that know what I mean it was like you know what I mean but that's how it happened it works shoot your shot I sent a one of the things I always tell people is when you shoot your shot don't be trying to like when you come in as a burden, no one wants to, if you're like, hi, I'm so sorry. If you start with an apology, you already lost, right? Mm-hmm. So I've always been the kind of person when I'm shooting my shot, that's like, hi, my name is Tiffany and I'm this and I'm that and here's my shit and it sucks, thanks. <laughs> you know, and they're like, man, this song sucks but that girl has some confidence. <laughs> you know, like there might be something to it, you know? Um, is that something where, if it's like a song structure thing, if they're like, you know what, you know, maybe she's, she needs to, you know, figure out this, that's something that could be taught, but having that, that charisma, having that confidence, that's not something you can really teach people. That's the way I feel like you either have that or you don't like, you, you can, can teach somebody. Fair, you can fair, teach fair. It. You can encourage, you can help, you can help bring it out of somebody yep. because I think yep. everyone has comp like confidence is not like something that everyone like oh you get you get this much confidence but this person doesn't Mm -hmm. get no it's something that you tap into it's a spirit it's a it's a but it's something you have to decide like you know you decide it's like being brave right it's like it's not about not being scared like 
you know, I sent my little demo and I'm pretty, I was like, oh my God, you know, after you send it, you're like, oh my God, what did I do? That demo so she, honestly, I hope no one actually listens to it. Like, (laughs) you know, like you have all those thoughts, but it's, it's like being confident. I feel like goes hand in hand with being brave. And it's just like being willing to show up no matter what's going to happen. You know what I mean? And that's a choice. I feel like confidence is a choice. It's not a, I think that there are some people who have more outgoing personalities, mm-hmm. but being outgoing doesn't mean that you're confident. It just means no. that you go for a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so I think that confidence is something that anyone can tap into. You know. So let me ask you this then. When you, when you kind of got your foot in the door, hey, this is at least a meeting, a discussion, somebody got to hear. At what point did it become a formal thing? At what point were deals signed? At what point were you like in the room working on things? So the person who responded to me was newly, he just got the job. He's the publisher (laughs) and his job was to find talent. This is pre-Instagram guys. This was before we were scrolling to find (laughs) talent. We were, this is when you had to actually look for some shit. So it was his, his job was to find people like me who needed some work, but had a little charisma or whatever. So he was like, Hey, I think you're dope. If you can make it out here, you can come work with us for a week. And I was like, what? <laughs> I can come to the underdogs and work for a week. Hell yeah. So I begged my mom for like $200 or $300. I can't remember how much the flight was then. Um, but, you know, I begged her for some money and I never looked back. I literally went to LA and I never left. Like I went to LA to work with them for a week. I was petrified that was like to go from like I discovered that I wanted to do music when I was 19 when I was 20 I was walking the halls of the underdog studio the week that I got there they were on the cover of billboard they had just did dream girls so like I walked into a like this is like this is like them at their prime like you know so I'm walking in like oh my god and so the first week I was terrified and I didn't write anything. And they were like kicking me out of the studio. Like, get this kid out of here. Who is she? She sucks. Like, this is not, this is not good. But I met a lot of people that first week. And there was this guy, there was this guy that worked, um, worked for the underdogs named Dobbs. And he was their like uh, IT guy, like their computer guy. He did, I mean, he's like a computer genius, like. I don't understand why he doesn't work at Apple, by the way. He's like the first person who had the, I, the, I remember when the first iPhone came out and he just, he knew everything about it. Like he just, was, I don't know, which is why, hence him being the IT guy. Anyway, so me and him got really cool. And I remember having a conversation with him. It was like a Friday. I was supposed to leave to go back home because my week of being in LA was up. And I told him that I didn't want to leave. I was like, I just feel like if I leave, like I'll never get this chance again, you know? And he's like, so don't leave. And like, that was like my first like big girl, you know, like I graduated high school 2005. I moved to LA 2007. So I moved from my parents' house to Los Angeles to pursue being a songwriter as my first time moving out of my parents' house. You know what I mean? So it was like my first, and I was 20. It was like a a, a couple weeks after my 20th birthday. Like I was really young, (laughs) you know? So, you know, I call my mom and I'm like, 
so I don't think I'm gonna like come back. I think I'm gonna stay. And she's like, get your ass on the plane. I'm not fucking playing with you. <laughs> and I mean, I broke her heart. It was fucked up how I did it. But impulsive Tiffany being like, oh, I think I'm just gonna stay. Like that was my first impulsive like life decision. Um, and my first like big life decision, but I don't know. I just saw the opportunity, like, and I was sitting in the middle of it. It was like, it was all based on what I did. Like, I'm like, you know, there's artists running all through here and I'd be a fool to be paralyzed by this fear that I have of not being able to do it. Like, why not just try? And were these so like I sessions did. in which they would be like, here's some beats, like let's let's figure out some some lyrics on top of that? Because I think mm-hmm. what's been interesting is a lot of the listeners have been saying, hey, some of the your previous guests have said the term top liner. Others are like, we're a writer. They're like, it's what is what? Thing. And I and I was the, like, it's synonymous. It's <laughs> yeah, it's all the same thing. It's just a bunch of different terms, but it all means. Were the were there thing. artists in mind that you were, you know, kind of pitching ideas? You know what I mean? Were there artists like, hey, initially. You know what? I don't, I don't, I can't remember, like, honestly, like, I think that they were just trying to get a feel for what I could do, you know, almost like, yeah, almost like, not necessarily audition, but like, kind of like, you know, let's put her in the room with some of our new producers, I wasn't working with Harvey and Damon, like, Mm -hmm. I was terrible, like, they're not, like, I was, like, I wasn't a confident singer, because, so, uh, like I said, I didn't grow up, like, singing, right, so I wasn't a confident singer, when I started, I was a writer. I started as a writer. I was writing poems. I wasn't singing. And so I always had a, a nice tone, but I didn't, I wasn't confident in my voice. And so that was where I learned to sing, like was when I was there. And so I think part of my nervousness when I was there, like I was literally, they would put me in the room. I had never co-written before, or done any of the, you know, I never worked with people I didn't know. I'd never done any of that before. And so you know, to go from like writing songs in my mom's basement to like, we're going to throw you in a for real studio. This is, you know, the last person he wrote on Chris Brown. I'm like, oh my God, what the hell? You know? And so <laughs> <laughs> like, I was like, oh, but I learned really fast. Like, and I, um, they were on Dreamgirls. That's how I ended up on Jennifer Hudson because they were already working with her. Hopping out for a quick second to remind you, don't forget to join me on Patreon, www.theoriginaldoll.com, for some exclusive content. And there you can also let me know what sort of songs or songwriters or producers would you like to hear from in the future. Now back to the show. And so um, I had a song that I had written um, called Invisible that I had written in my parents' basement before I had moved to L.A. And um, one of the producers and songwriters that was signed signed there, his name is Stephen Russell, and he... um, like I was just like the pesky kid like at the studio so like I was constant like they were just always like she's still here like what who let her in this time was the energy like I've gotten sick like if you talk to anybody from back in the day the underdogs will tell you like there was a meeting to kick me out like there was a there was a like do not let this girl back on this floor and Steve was like come on <laughs> and it's fine it's fine and we wrote invisible he See, me and he yeah was, so he took the he took the chance and so then I was just like sitting in his room like hey there's this song idea I have called invisible and he was like all right well tell me about it 
And that was like the first, my first like proper song that I did with the underdog. And, and I mean, that goes on to, I mean, that was the Grammy win. That was an, that was the Jennifer Hudson Grammy win for like R&B album that year. And yep. I wanted to, I wanted to let you know, I, I kind of read a couple of these to you before, but on the original doll, we have a lot of listeners that say, hey, if you ever get to talk to this person. So we had Penelope in Atlanta said, Invisible made me feel confident for the first time. Bernice mm-hmm. in Chicago said, that song changed my life. It really was that moment that I needed to just go forward with my new tasks. Tanya said, I listened to At My Lowest and it helped me recharge. It was the spiritual awakening that I needed. Please let everyone involved know that this was important to me. I may never meet them, but can you please thank them for creating this? That's just, that's just a couple of those. So thank you for that, that song. And that song is still really good, by the way. Like I always tell people, I go with R&B for me, there's the R&B that is timeless and the R&B that like, you can tell that was just like that quick, we're just trying to Mm -hmm. jump on that sound at the moment. Mm -hmm. And with Invisible, it is, it's one of my favorite Jennifer Hudson tracks. And I think that the chorus in it, just those voices. Now, are you the background in that? Mm-mm, that wasn't me oh my god I can't all the time there was there were um there were these I can't remember what their names are are off top of my head but I feel like they were sisters um so good, that they that... used to use for like background vocals and like the story behind that song is so interesting so back back then Melanie Fiona used to be up there and she used to go by Siren was her name and the original singer on Invisible is Melanie Fiona. Um, it was originally for that. Yeah, it was originally. Um, and I remember like, I didn't demo the song. I think Steve demoed the song. Cause like I said, I wasn't a confident singer. So I was like, you know, all scary. And it's such a big, big, like the hook is so big. Like, you know, I was just 20 year old Tiffany couldn't sing that song yet. Um, but um yeah she was she was uh, originally singing on it and I don't I, I wasn't a part of the process as far as like how the record ended up not going to her and ended up going to um Jennifer Hudson but um yeah it was originally on Melanie F- or Siren and then it ended up on Jennifer Hudson but I wasn't in the studio session so I don't know like that was literally my first placement like like I said I was like the pipsqueak of the like crew. you know what I mean they were like yeah. We like your song, but like, get the fuck out of here. Because <laughs> they knew I, I love was like, it. hi, my name is Tiffany and I'm, you know. <laughs> so how did, so, because I want to, because we can even transition from this to that. So here you are writing a song that's getting placed. And we hear these stories from, from other guests and everything, where it's like some people have the artist tax and how do you handle this? And somebody's like, no, your percentage is only this. How did that feel the first time you even had any sort of discussion of like, oh, wait, like, oh, we're making money off of this? Like, cool. Do you know what I mean? Like, explain yeah. how that is because that's a huge jump from just writing poems in your, your you know, your parents' basement to going, oh, wait, so now this is, this can be a financial career? Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. how was that meeting? And how, what did you know before? Or I should say, what do you know now that you didn't know before that you might've handled differently in general? Well, I mean, the first time that I was presented with a split sheet was for that song. And I had never seen a split sheet before. And to be honest, like, I mean, it was my first song that I had ever done with them. It had been my first placement and it was on Jennifer Hudson. But after she just won an Oscar, like, you know, and, and so, and this is what the music business does an incredible job at. 
is, you know, it gets you caught up in that. And then you're usually really young, like I was young. And so I didn't necessarily understand the gravity of what that even was. It was the first time and I didn't know I had no um, education yet on publishing on what a split sheet was. It was like, hey, this is what you're going to get of this. Thank God it was honestly, I, my split on Invisible was really good, honestly. Um, but but uh, I didn't necessarily understand that first time. But after that, I was like, oh, so this is where we, this is what we signed when, you know, and then, yeah. But yeah, the first time it was, it was, I was just happy to be there, which is what mm-hmm. I advise everyone against. You know what I mean? Like I just, that day, I will never forget it. Chris Brown was at the studio. I don't know what record he was working on, but I remember his, they had his, one of his pit bulls was running around the studio. I was like, I can, and I remember Harvey, I don't think Harvey liked dogs, so I just thought, oh shit, they like Chris dog running around the studio. This is like, this is like, man, Chris Brown 2007. I mean, this is, I don't know, prime time Chris Brown. Oh yeah. And I remember his security was there. I had like a friend with me. And I was so excited that I had just got my first placement. And so Chris was like, he was like, hey, what's up? And I don't even know him. I'm like, I was like, hi. And, you know, I said, hi. My friend with me is like freaking out. Like, oh my God, my ringtone is Chris Brown. I hope my phone doesn't ring. Like, <laughs> it was so funny. She was so like, and, his, and so she's like freaking out. His security is looking at her like, back up and he's like nah let her over nah let her over I remember he was like you look familiar I was like oh shit she about to go for it she's like who oh, me like, and I'm like, so we're just like having this cute little kiki and then I was like oh my god we don't even know each other I just got my first place on, on Jennifer Hudson this is the split sheet <laughs> and he was like congratulations and the security just looking at us like kids <laughs> like it was so um that's an amazing thing but that's one of those moments where it's like you know you're like what do I have that I can show like here it is this is the split I framed it I put it in a frame it sat on the (laughs) it sat on my dresser like I did that that it was the first time that I had ever imagined something and then actualized it like that's one of my favorite things to do is to like complete an idea like for it to be like I dreamed that whether it be a song whether it be a relationship whether it be a business idea whatever it is like so I framed it because I just was like because it was proof it was proof that I could shoot my shot and that it could work you know I was just like yeah I'll put that little thing in a frame <laughs> well and the, and the thing is Jennifer Hudson at that point there was so much anticipation of what was going to be on that album of what was mass- happening. I mean it was massive and, I was like and, one of the only new writers on that project. That project was full of hitters like Diane Warren and fucking, you know what I mean? It was it was massive songwriters and producers. And I mean, I just squeezed on there because, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. But that's what kept me in the room. That's what got me. That's how I ended up signed. That's how I ended up. Because then it was like, I went from pipsqueak annoying to great. Now she's on the Grammy nominated album. <laughs> That, that's that's then, one of those things it's like it's like okay yeah. here here she is. like everyone's like we don't know what is going on with tiffany she's running around this place and everything. she's yeah, like walking like, in what? everywhere and then yeah. all of a sudden it's like 
then you get this cut. You know what I mean? And so wait, let me ask you this though. When it was Siren, how long before it went from Siren to Jennifer Hudson? Was that one of those like quick things or for a while, did you think it was going to be on Siren then last minute, boom, Jennifer Hudson? Honestly, the way that I was presented with her on the song was that she was the demo singer of the song. She was presented like it was her song. I never found I we found that out year. So I ended up I've worked with with her, you know, later on. But I didn't know that then. So like her and I like finally had our talk about the song or whatever. And she told me um, that it was like a record that she had cut for her stuff. And so um, I can't necessarily remember the timeline in between like when it got placed. I just remember like it wasn't that long because I mean, I mm-hmm. got to L.A. in 2007. That album came out in 2008. So it was like in that year. But I can't remember like what the process was, but I also wasn't very involved. Like that was when the underdogs were they had their JV with J Records and they were that was when uh, Clive was there. And so they were working directly with Larry Jackson and Clive. I was definitely not invited to that party (laughs) you're outside hey what are you guys doing hey but it's my song they're like get out of here (laughs) (laughs) well take 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 this paper and just go for a walk right i love it so let me ask you this though okay so at this time and that is jennifer hudson this is when cds were still selling to an extent do you know what i mean this is when people were still purchasing them because technology hadn't really come in to snatch up these whole things. And also when I've been talking to other guests is there was definitely a turning point 2009, 10, 11, where people's music was just getting leaked and hacked all over the place. Like oh every song was gosh. going off. That Our- happened to us at the underdogs. <sighs> there was a, they used to have this thing in the, um, in the A room of the studio called the Mix Mac that had just like, they, when they would take like meetings with artists or like executives and stuff, the Mix Mac had like all the records that all of me, James, Rob, not, you got to remember every, there's so many people signed. The Mix Mac got hacked and all of our songs ended up on like YouTube or I don't, was it LimeWire? SoundCloud, I don't know whatever, what, Napster, yes, whatever Yes, to this day, there's old Tiffany Fred underdog demos out there on, uh, there's a whole underdog page I gave up. I'm like, I don't fucking care, whatever. <laughs> Hopping out for a quick second. Many people have asked me, I know many of you are songwriters, producers, artists, and more, and many of you are asking, James, are there any sort of organizations or anything that uh, we should kind of take a look at or do that? So I talked to Tiffany Red about the 100%er so that you all can kind of get a little bit more background information on that. So we're going to get right to that. And don't forget, if you're a fan of listening to the show, don't forget to write, rate, and review this on your preferred streaming platform and let friends know about this. Now back to the show. But I want to talk about the hundred percenters. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for my listeners who have no clue what this is, this is a, you know, song advocacy, songwriter advocacy 101. Tell me a little bit about this and what, what life was like before and where we wanted to go. How can we as consumers help? Okay. Um, okay, so the 100 Percenters is a nonprofit organization that I started let, what is 2021. So last July, so July of 2021, or 2020, sorry. Um, and it started as, like, okay, so I spoke out last summer about a song that I wrote um, for a group called NCT. Um called boss 
and it was their biggest song of all time. And um, I got paid really bad for it. And, you know, like whenever you get into like a fight with someone, it usually doesn't come out of nowhere, right? So this is something that we've been going back and forth about for a long time. Um, in Korea specifically, like it takes two years for your royalties to be collected. So like the song had been out since 2018, but I couldn't collect any money for the first two years because that's how long it takes. That's what they say, that's how long it takes, right? So like, there's been so many people that have said like, why, you know, why all of a sudden she coming out now? It's like, because the rules are, you don't make money for two years. So I couldn't say anything until the money started coming in. And then I saw the money and was like, what the f is this? This record is a, a smash. What the hell is going on? Um, so I spoke out about my experience with K-pop um, and it got a lot of attention. <laughs> and um, so it was like my first experience with going viral. So then I went viral on Instagram, on Instagram, I think it was on Reddit and Facebook. And so I was faced with like a choice really fast. Like, okay, like I know from my songwriting career as well as being an artist and just being around the moment that something, it's like, this is the moment. Like this is the, this, I could have never imagined that I would get the world's attention from talking about my experience with K-pop, but all these media outlets are in my DMs. All of these people are, you know, it was like I was bombarded. Um, and so I kept talking. Like I kept, I just, I saw the opportunity to to leverage um, this conversation into the bigger conversation, which is that songwriters get paid like, shit. we don't just get paid like shit in Korea, we get paid like shit all over the world. Um, and mm -hmm. um, our organization, we advocate for everyone. But, you know, the, the BIPOC and marginalized community is dear to my heart because it's the community that I belong to. Um, and so one of the things that I was speaking out about with K-pop as well was um, cultural appropriation. And I talked about how I was a part of the problem. Like, I just was like, y'all wasn't calling yourself a boss till I came over there and said it. And I wrote it. You know what I mean? It's like the swag of that record is my swag, you know? Um, and so I released the demo and then people were able to hear like, oh, this is really her mm -hmm. swag. Yes. You know, it's like in, a, in, in English, this is what I'm saying. This is what it originally sounded like. And um, so like, it was also at the time when like the protests were happening. This is like a couple months into the pandemic. Like, it was just like, everybody's in a pressure cooker. You know, I'm in LA protesting everywhere. There's um, um, National Guard everywhere. It was like a scary time. Everything is boarded up, you know? So it just felt like war uh, at that time. And so like um, the headline was black songwriter, you know, uh, K for K-pop hit, whatever. And so like the, those were the headlines, right? And so, you know, my Harriet the Spy ass just putting shit together. You know, I'm like, well, this makes a really great platform. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I had been building my 
Tiffany Red brand and platform for a couple years. And then when that happened, I mean, I never imagined that I would become a songwriter advocate. I didn't, I didn't plan the hundred percenters. It was not my dream, none of that, but I saw the opportunity. I saw it was that same thing with like the light bulb when I first started writing music. When I saw, when I thought of the idea, the concept of the hundred percenters was right before I left LA. I'll never forget my friend Al Jamal. He was like, yo, you got to do that hundred percenters thing. And at that point I was so overwhelmed. I had just got back to LA. I mean, from LA and I was overwhelmed with like doing the press stuff. Like I had never had any experience with like talking to journalists and being a part of a news cycle. Mm-hmm. Like, because, because of, I was black and that was the news, they, like the regular news was like reaching out and stuff. And so it was like, it was really overwhelming, but I mean, I just grabbed the bull by the horns and I just went for it. I had a bunch of friends who felt the same way that I felt. And so initially it just started as like an initiative of us being like, where's our money <laughs> to, um, it slowly just working itself out and then I found out figured out that I'm good at organizing you know I have a lot of relationships and I figured out I'm good at like using my relationships like I learned a lot of things about myself through the process of just going with the flow like you know there was a an opportunity for me to like create something that was for us and so I just went with it now what does the name 100 percenter mean for those that may so, be asking. So I write, produce, engineer, and mix. So like my last my last um, two projects, majority of the records are completely 100 percenters, meaning I oh. own the entire thing. I own the master, the publishing. I produced it. I wrote it myself. It's 100% mine. Um, and so, and I became a 100 percenter because my I was making such shit money. You know, I, I had to learn how to, I tell people in the music business all the time, like, you know, that are like mad with me for doing all the things I'm doing. I'm like, I'm your Frankenstein. Like you made me like, because you didn't do this mm-hmm. and you didn't do this and you didn't do this. I had to figure out this and this and this and this. So now I know how to do all of these things, you know, and I'm able to 100% create a song. I'm able to 100% create a company. I know how to like, you know, it's just a beyond music. It's like, you know, we're in the, the, the age of the entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. I, I, um, I think I, I just like to encourage people to like be brave enough to do hundred percent of it. It's a lot of work, but like knowing how to do all of the jobs so that when it's time to like hire people and bring people on and all of that stuff, you know how to do everything. So yeah, that was the concept of the 100 percenters. It was like, I do it 100 percent. And so it was just like, and it's 100 so, percent on a split sheet. That was the other thing. That, like, yes. On a split, the song is not, it goes out at 100 percent. And so the this organization represents the people that are on the splits, the 100 percenters. <laughs> so then let me ask you this. Before this 100 percenters, before you did it all, how was a song, and this is like beginning, you know, 101, how is a song actually split up in the most generic, and we could even use, you know, let's say there is one songwriter, one producer, and one artist. Okay. How does a song get split up in, in the normal, like leading up to, you know, 2020? What was the, when a $1.29 goes from 
Okay, so if me and you wrote it, let's just use me and yeah. you. So, so if me and you did a song together, I make the beat, you wrote the lyrics and the melody, we're going to split it down the middle. So you own 50% of the, of the publishing and I own 50% of the publishing. So when you create a song and it is copywritten, a copyright consists of two parts. It's the sound recording, which is what you always hear people talk about with a master. So there's a sound recording and then there's the composition. So the composition is the publishing side. So me and you do our song, we own 100%, split 50-50 of the publishing of the, of the song, right? Mm-hmm. So industry standard says that, that songwriters don't participate in the master side of the copyright. So the songwriters are typically excluded out of the sound recording side. So we don't own any of the sound recording. So the, the label, if the person has a record deal, the label usually owns 80% of the sound recording. Um, and then the rest of it is distributed between, usually the, the next highest uh, shareholder of that part is the artist. And then the artist is responsible for paying the producers out of mm. their points. So everybody's points is in each other's points except for the label. So the label keeps 80% of the sound recording. The songwriter doesn't get any of the sound recording. We only participate in the publishing. And then the producer usually gets a point or two, which is literally one to 2%. Um, and the, comp- the, the, the sound recording side is what, I mean, makes all the, the the big money. That's sales. That's the the um, physical copy of something. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like you know, you get the mechanical royalties, like literally the mechanics, like the physical copy of something. That's why everything's gotten so confusing because now nothing's physical anymore, mm-hmm. and so they're kind of just like they're like, we know this doesn't make sense, but we already control this. We're just gonna sweep it under and say it's a mechanical uh. royalty. I'm like, y'all know damn well y'all need to make some new shit up. This don't even make any sense. <laughs> You know, but you know, whatever, that's for another day. But um, so majority of the revenue in 2021 is generated by the sound recording side of the song. So like, um, like I said, that's the physical sale of it. That's the streaming. That's the, I mean, it's the bread and butter of everything. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the split. And it's 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 infuriating to hear that because me as a as a consumer, me as a listener of music, me clearly as a supporter of. I mean, this is just one artist, you know. Like I said, like Janet is all even up to oh, made listen, for now is over I there. Like, I like cassettes, it. everything. I'm like I have, and I have the Jennifer Hudson. I have some promo CDs and stuff like that, but I I also buy the first run stuff, and I'm like, oh, I really like this. But I think what was what was crazy to me is early on in this. You know, I talked to Helene Linval of the Ivers Academy and I just oh, I said, she's, oh, she's amazing. And mm-hmm. she told this story about how, you know, they did this research kind of thing and, and Harriet, right? Harriet the spy over here is going to know what this is like, but it's like, let's take like a Kylie song and, you know, it streams a million times on Spotify, streams a million times on Apple. The mm-hmm. song itself, you know, was only making, you know, $900 on, you know, Apple for that million streams, but then on Spotify, yep. it was like $400. And it's just, 
the fact that mu- the music, the value of it fluctuates daily based on somebody else's decision of that, it confuses me because mm-hmm. I think now we're just, we're not paying artists what is the appropriate amount because we don't, we don't go, oh, everyone, let, let me just go get this movie for free today or I'll get them, I'll pay, you know, two cents for the movie today, $3 for the movie tomorrow. It's like, for some reason, I feel like in my, my interactions with people, they're like, well, if I can get it on YouTube for free, why should I have to pay for it? But the We've thing lost is, the value is, of None that. of it is free. Sucks. That's not true, though. Yeah. It's not free. Mm-hmm. YouTube isn't free. Netflix isn't free. The music business is making more money than it's ever made. It's Did not it say free. that it was like a billion dollars in yes, profits? They're just not. So listen, here's the truth. The truth is that the DSPs are paying out. The DSPs, that is a um, digital... Digital service provider. Because it's basically like they are it's, not, it's that service provider, like Apple, all those people that. Yes, they are just a middleman. Apple and Spotify do not pay us. They pay the record labels. It is the, and the publishing companies and the performance rights organizations, that's ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC. It is their responsibility to pay us. So what's happening, remember how I said the record label keeps 80% of the money, right? And now it's even more. Because the thing is, is when all of these contracts were negotiated between the DSPs and the labels and whatever, who was, what songwriters were invited to that? None of us were, right? So what we're doing as an organization is pushing our way into the room to have those conversations, to be the representative, to be like, why are we only getting two cents? This doesn't make any sense, you know? Um, And so there's a lot of confusion because the narrative in the press because nobody ever wants to go up against the record companies is that it's all the DSP's fault. And it's not, it's the record label's fault. Because the thing is, is music isn't free. It's not like what you guys Mm -hmm. are doing isn't generating money. Going on YouTube and watching a video, someone is getting paid for that. No one is not, it's making money. And so I think it's a misconception. Streaming is a super lucrative business, super lucrative. Like, you know, yes, you're paying your monthly subscription, but they've got millions and millions of subscribers and people are watching it. You, I heard that the um, the Chappelle uh, stand-up, they said they're brought in like almost a billion dollars. It's like, they're making money. Mm. We're not making money. The money's being generated. It's just being stolen. And I know no one wants to say that those words, but it's, mm-hmm. they're thieves. They're criminals. Mm. They're crooks. They're stealing candy from babies. I was 20 when I did my deal. You know, give what I'm saying? I wasn't even yeah. old enough to drink when I wrote for, for Jennifer Hudson. Put in perspective for people who are adults. Think about your kids, right? So it's not that the, the music business is robust. It's booming. Universal brought in $2 billion this year. Sony brought in a billion dollars this year. There's absolutely no reason. But the thing is, is like, look at it, like zoom out and look at, because we've we've gotten a massive lesson in this last two years about what the experiences of oppressed and marginalized groups. So songwriters are the most, one of the most oppressed, because I honestly, I feel like engineers are treated like too, but we're one of the most oppressed groups in the creative process, right? So the producer, the artist, the executive, there's no real true incentive to 
advocate for us because they're making money. The producer's getting a fee. Yeah, they're only getting one to 2% of the master, but they're not getting nothing. They're getting their producer fees. They're getting their, you know, the artist is walking away with what they're walking away with. They're able to go do, do shows and sell merch and go act and be a celebrity and do all the things, right? And so it's like, when you've got the the most oppressed group, it's the same thing as like anything else with oppression in this country or in, in the world where it's like, of course it doesn't make sense that women make less money, but that's the reality. Of course it doesn't make sense that, you know, they wanna build a wall, but that's the reality because it, of course it doesn't make sense that black people get stopped more than the cops, but that's the, it's the same exact concept with songwriters. It's the same exact thing. No, it doesn't make sense that we're excluded from the from the sound recording now. Back when music first was, when the music business was first starting and the original concept of a producer fee was dreamed or came to life, all of it initially made sense, right? It was like the producer fee was the budget. That was supposed to pay for the studio. That was supposed to pay for your background singers. That was supposed to pay for the musicians. That was supposed Mm. to pay for the mix. It was supposed to, the person who produced the situation, right? But now, you're not paying all of that. You're not buying a new computer to make that beat. You're not doing Mm -hmm. like, all those things aren't happening, right? So the producer fee, but a producer's not gonna advocate against that. That's privilege. Why would they fight against what they have that's working mm-hmm. for them. So we're like, I'm not going to rock the boat because that might mean that I might lose something. Oh, got You get it. what I'm saying? Yep. So it's like, it's yep. like how white people, it's like, that's so f***ed up. But if I go against the group, then that, then I get ostracized. Or mm-hmm. if I say, yeah, that's true, then what will I lose? One. And then the other thing is, is there's a hierarchy. So there's the artist, then there's the producer, then there's the songwriter, and then there's the engineer, right? And the producers, the conductor is supposed to be the conductor of the situation, but things have gotten so blurry. So like, for instance, like I have a lot of relationships with artists. So I might be the person that gets the record in the hands of the artist. So even though I say I wrote it, you produced it, but I know Zendaya. Mm -hmm. Now, typically it would be the producer or it used to be the producer who would control and facilitate the record, the process with the label and all of that stuff. But now what's happening is the lines have gotten blurry and the rules just haven't changed. This is like, imagine when the weed, when weed became legal, but everybody was still locked up. That's literally what's happening, right? It's an archaic system. And there are things that are old that are still about the system that are it up. And then there's things that are new. And so the people, like there are people who do publishing deals now who have none of the issues for that I'm advocating with for people that are signed to the exact same companies because they're stuck in old versions of those deals. Does the publishing company and the label know that? Yes, the same way the country knows that to keep people who are locked up for a dime bag of weed in there while they are investing in weed themselves. Yes, but that's America. Mm -hmm. So the reason why I go hard for the, the BIPOC and marginalized communities specifically is because we're the ones that when you're marginalized, these things affect you the most. So like, as the deals have started to change, the people who get them first are the people who have the privilege, the people who have the relationships, the people who have the, and those people usually are not black or brown, or those people are not, you know, that or women, or like, it's not a lot of space 
um, or there it wasn't a lot of space um, for that, you know? So like, it's very much so like, like the, the thing is about the music business is, is the thing that messes it up for us is that it's such a glamorized industry because it's part of the entertainment business. So everyone thinks that because you wrote for Rihanna, you're rich. Rihanna's rich. Mm-hmm. Rihanna's rich. Just because you wrote for Rihanna doesn't mean that you're rich, right? Yeah. Like, and and a and a and a uh, album cut versus a single in 2021 is, I mean, if you wrote for Rihanna and you got an album cut on Rihanna in 2021, that is not going to make you rich. Not because you aren't. Nope. She's not worthy of me. It's because the system is rigged. If this was back when Rihanna was selling records, you'd be rich. But like, it's so crazy because so when I went when I wrote Replay. As many of you know, I go through iTunes archives. I go through radio logs to honor so many of the greats. Here's some fun information because many times people say, James, can you find out when this song is? Because on Wikipedia, it says this date, but I swear I heard it before. Well, as many people know, on Wikipedia, anyone can change any information. Some people use official listings from uh, record magazines and things like that. But here's what's amazing is I actually go through the radio logs and I see where the songs were logged. Well, replay Zendaya had its U.S. radio debut August 3rd, 2013. Some of the stations that were playing it were in San Francisco and Fresno. And then it would continue a rollout the next week in San Diego, Tulsa, and a couple weeks later in Chicago. Now, the other thing is Zendaya's replay is now in the United States three times platinum with sales over 3 million copies. That's right. And in Australia, it is two times platinum with sales over 140,000 copies sold. This is amazing. And I bring this up because it's important to see that many people know Zendaya, whether it was the child star Zendaya, whether it was Euphoria Zendaya, whether it was, you know, the greatest showman Zendaya. But Zendaya herself has had success and having a three times platinum song, it's not a bad music legacy. So now back to the show. When Replay came out, rather, it came out right when... It was, was that 2014, I think? So it was like right when... 2013, 2013. Okay, so so at that point, iTunes, record sales was still a thing. So like, even mm-hmm. though streaming, Replay did great, you know, on streaming, but it also performed well on the radio. And so to make money, to have a hit record then versus now, like this is why I stopped. Like this was why, like, cause I wrote another hit and I didn't make the same kind of money. So I had these these expectations because I was a part of, I came in the music business as those things were shifting. So I got to experience record sales mm. and streaming. So I knew the money. I was like, this is not how much I made off of replay. <laughs> Where's my money? You know what I mean? Now have no fear. We have more with Tiffany Red coming up in the next few episodes, but we're going to hop to my interview with Fernando Garibay producer who's worked with so many people, including Lady Gaga and Britney Spears. We're going to talk about his song, Quicksand, that he collaborated on with Lady Gaga. We're going to talk about the evolution of the song and more. And if you haven't heard any of my interviews with Fernando Garibay, go through the different episode lists on your preferred streaming platform, whether it's Apple, whether it's Spotify or Amazon, and go through the list and see where Fernando Garibay is. We go through a lot of his music and there's still more coming up soon. But this 
is Quicksand Britney Spears with Fernando Garibay. I still see your coat hanging on the door Never let anybody put one there before My pillow's got your head printed on it Baby, of all the guys, you were my favorite Don't ask me why I just can't say goodbye No, not tonight No, I just can't say it And I wanted you to hop in now to some more of these these questions. We have a song from T from Tokyo. Can you tell Fernando G that his music is timeless? I thought his work on Circus was a game changer. The Britney songs, Quicksand and Amnesia, and my top three favorite Britney songs of all time, along with Baby One More Time. Please let Fernando Garibay know that he created music that I used when I was in physical therapy after an accident. The quicksand beat just kept me going and it was something that I needed. So thank you and thank you universe for giving that to us. Also, can you please ask, I always wondered, could there ever be an EP? There had to have been more than those songs that were on there. Please, please, please talk about that. And as we're talking about, you know, the the circus track right here, Amnesia, which is available on certain editions of the circus album. So here we go. Let's talk about quicksand. And Amnesia is a separate song that we have more questions on. So can you talk a little bit about that quicksand thing? How did it come about? We know it was a Gaga collaboration. Yeah. So I'm playing, I'm looking, I pulled up my session because um, ha- I'm like, I'm have all my files here. I'm listening. I'm going to play the vocal version because that's with uh, Gaga's vocal. And yeah, so this was when I first met her and Gaga, actually. So Renee Van Berseveld had um, the studio that, that we then I then inherited. And so it was right behind a McDonald on Highland. And there is where kind of all this happened, where the Pussycat Dolls would show up because Jimmy would send them over. Uh, Enrique would come by regularly. We'd had um, Bruno Mars uh, eventually, uh, Bruno and, and uh, his songwriting partner eventually moved to the front of the building. So it was Enrique, um, um, uh, all the um, girl and- bands, not all the girl bands. Okay. Um, then Bruno Sia became a really good friend. Uh, and it was just a rotation of these new artists, songwriters that were going to be mega stars, mega stars. And it, you know, so the song, specifically the piano line, was something I was playing with because I, I heard Jimmy's like, he calls me and, and Jimmy Iveen and, and he goes, oh, I have this new artist. You got to work with her. Um, that's it. It hangs up. And I'm like, cool. No time, no nothing. All right. So I'm in the studio and I'm, I know I had to do something because I had to create some music. So I was playing this piano line on quicksand. It was one of the first songs that we wrote, literally. And while I'm doing that piano line, uh, I was like, oh, this is interesting. You know, it kind of it is yearning right, of some sort. And, and so I heard, I finally stopped playing and I heard this banging on my back gate and was metal gate from that studio. And I opened the store and I've told the story before, but I opened the, st- the door and here's this woman at midnight on a dot wearing a black leotard. And it's winter, by the way. So it's freaking cold, like, and it's dangerous <laughs> out there, right? Yep. It's like, it's not a safe neighborhood. And yeah, she's like, she's cussing me out. She's like, why the F? How did you dare you little woman out here in the cold in, in, a, in a leotard and stilettos? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, she's literally yelling at me. 
He goes, oh, I'm so sorry I didn't hear you. Um, she goes, it's okay. My name is Gaga. She comes in and then she's, she's like, she sits out, she sits at my, my piano, my MIDI piano, and she starts playing. And she goes, I just finished my album. I'm gonna sing you a song. Tell me what you think. I, and this is we just shared a few words, right? And she goes and plays me a um, poker face. I'm like, oh my God. And then she plays me, um, she's singing, uh, like singing the songs that she just recorded with Red One. And, and she plays um, Just Dance. I'm like, uh, can we just like write every day? I told her I was just an awestruck because I, I knew what they were. Oh just, you don't hear that every day. And then she plays me a bit of the, 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 out, the stuff she's been doing with Red One, the actual recordings. I'm like, that's really cool. It's amazing. Like, I, like I'm envious. I wish I could have been a part of that. Because, ah, we'll do more. <laughs> and, so, and she goes, what do you think? And I go, yeah. So I was just playing around with this idea. And that was quicksand. And she starts started singing it, like starting kind of freestyling the vocal and then, you know, pen and paper. And, and then, you know, talks about what it's like to be in a relationship you sucks you in. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really connect, connected with, um, with the record label and, and, and then with Britney. And unfortunately, um, it was a competitive uh, U.S. market. And so what happens is a lot of my music was really different. Mm-hmm. And it tends to age well. It doesn't connect immediately. And I think it's some, I think where some considered my music challenging was that it was not made for now. It's made for later. It's like wine. It ages. I knew that, mm-hmm. right? So, so mm-hmm. I go and make music like four years ago, and it, and then it becomes a hit, like you know, now, right? So, Stars Are Blind is bigger now be- than it was when it came out because of that very reason. It's a mindset, and it requires a lot of discipline and trust in 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 yourself and the art you make. And it's it's un- it's not it's not it's non negotiable for me. Is if I don't. If I don't, I'm not moved to mm-hmm. tears with the music I create, then I'm not doing it service, right? I call it my my sand painting. You know, the Tibetan sand painters. Yeah, the, the when monks sit down and paint sand, you paint with sand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- this is a very you know to 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 then throw it out into the river, right? So that's what we do, right? It's not so much that. We're delivering content to a market space, or just there's this marketing. There's all this um, technical stuff that has to happen to create awareness for the record. It's more about can we start with something that's deeply moving and honest and genuine with the artist. So at Paris, you know, I I got to personally know her, and I knew I was right. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not what you see. She's a very intelligent, sweet, sweet woman. Same with Britney. That's why they're good friends mm-hmm. because she's incredibly intelligent, sweet, sweet woman, right? And what happens with the incredibly intelligent, sweet, sweet women with big hearts is they get taken advantage of, mm-hmm. right? And so I write that story with them and about them. So, so uh, that's how these songs are honest. But uh, and amnesia, amnesia became bigger in Europe than it was in the U.S. and till the quicksand, right? They became fan favorites that have become bigger than the songs on the arguably in some some communities bigger bigger than the other ones and that's because of the connection 
Well, and that was one of those things where so many people were asking like for, for amnesia, because like I said, I have like that every time I go to a different country, I'll buy my favorites, their albums there, especially if they have bonus tracks. And I remember Casey Livingston, she said, boy, if you want a masterclass on how to get on a Japanese only edition of a Britney Spears album, I'll, I'll teach you that. Oh, that's so but funny. What I loved is to this day, the amount of emails that I get just in talking about with other other Britney collaborators so many people bring up quicksand and amnesia and we have wow. Lindsay in Los Angeles said James original doll I loved hearing you talk to Casey Livingston her voice is amazing Fernando Bay is up there Fernando Garibay is up there with Max Martin in my eyes he created music for Britney wow. that was so different and so ahead of its time but it is probably one of the best age songs that Britney has ever done I thought they should have been singles. Was there ever any talk about Amnesia going to be a single? It doesn't make any sense to me. Please have him talk about this because where is the justice? Justice for Amnesia. And in our archive episodes, you'll find Amnesia with Fernando Garibay. Now on to the next song. Now, as many of you know, I've often on social media talked about different songs about the kind of backgrounds, the certifications, radio performance, and everything. Today, I wanted to talk about Alanis Morissette's song, Hands Clean, from her album Under Rug Swept. Now, the song itself had its U.S. radio debut January 2nd, 2002. Now, what's truly amazing, and many people may say, wait, I looked on Wikipedia, it said it's a week later. I go through the actual radio logs to see this. And Alanis Morissette, just like Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, Madonna, and more, the demand for their songs on radio is so high that radio stations often play it before a said radio date release. But a little bit about Hands Clean. Now, Alanis Morissette has been open talking about her relationships, her sometimes, as she would call it, inappropriate relationships, uh, relationships that were toxic, relationships that she learned from. But I wanted to talk about Hands Clean because... The way that the song was created and the formula behind it, if you will, is interesting. Now, oftentimes we hear songs where it's told from one person's point of view or another person talking about a different situation as the outsider. This is what's amazing. Hands Clean Alanis Morissette. It really talks about a kind of forbidden relationship that Alanis had as a young child, as a teenager, as a 14-year-old with a much older man. What's interesting about this song is that the verses are basically lyrics told from the point of view of the older man. The chorus is told from the point of view of a young Alanis Morissette. If you've seen the video, which I highly recommend, you can actually see kind of how this plays out. And it features Chris Sarandon, who some people may go, that name sounds familiar. If you're a fan of Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas, he played the speaking voice for Jack Skellington. But back to the song. Now, the song itself being a lead singer from Hands Clean, there was a lot writing on this. The great thing is that it would go number one in Canada, 
and New Zealand, and in Australia, it would be certified gold. Now, what's amazing about this is when now we take the lyrics apart. Now you say, oh, I really like that song, and that song was catchy. Well, here's kind of a little bit more information about the song and the lyrics. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to play a snippet here, but keep in mind that the verse is told, once again, from the older man's point of view. So here's one of the verses. If it weren't for your maturity, none of this would have happened. If you weren't so wise beyond your years, I would have been able to control myself. If it weren't for my attention, you wouldn't have been successful. And if, if it weren't for me, you would never have amounted to very much. So I want to talk a little bit about that verse. So remember what I said. Imagine that the song, the verse is written from the older man in this relationship. The lyrics went, if it weren't for your maturity, none of this would have happened. If you weren't so wise beyond your years, I would have been able to control myself. If it weren't for my attention, you wouldn't have been successful. And if it weren't for me, you would never have amounted to very much. What I think is interesting is when we look at that, think about 20 years ago, 21 years ago, when the song was released. Many people were like, oh, this is an Alanis Morissette, it's catchy. When we look at it through eyes of, you know, post-Me Too movement, you look and you go, wow. So this man is saying, oh, this is because of you, young girl, because of who you are, because you act a lot older. Oh, this is because of you, but also because of me as the older man, I basically created you. I was the one who created your success. We've seen that in time and time again over the years where many stories are coming up out about these quote unquote these predators and things like that where these older men are like you know what your success is you know it's up to me to make you successful and basically the only reason why you have success is because of me now this is what's amazing now take a listen to the chorus okay i'm going to play a snippet of the chorus and i'm going to talk about it but now the chorus is written from the younger person's point of view, the, let's say, 14-year-old Alanis's point of view. So now that chorus, and many people have asked me before, because sometimes I'll play a snippet of a song and some people say, James, sometimes it's hard to understand. You know, can you kind of talk about it? So that's that's what I'm doing with this. But part of the chorus, once again, told from the the young teenager's point of view, it says, we'll fast forward to a few years later and no one knows except the both of us. And I have honored your request for silence and you've washed your hands clean of this. What I find astonishing about this is it really talks about the kind of unspoken rule that they've had. She's going to keep her mouth shut and then he's just going to move on past. And I think it's interesting because at first, the beginning of, you know, that pre-course, you know, this could get messy, but you don't seem to mind and don't go tell everybody and overlook this supposed crime. When you listen to that and go, okay, this is from the man's point of view to this young girl. You think, okay, not only was he saying your success is because of me, but also we're playing by my rules 
you're going to do everything that I say and be done with this. We're not going to talk about this anymore. And Alanis Morissette has talked about having, you know, these relationships with men. She's also said, you know, at times she was more upset with her and the song is more about her, that it wasn't this kind of revenge thing. But to have a song that when you take that closer inspection, you see this is what we now would say, like a toxic relationship and this predatory relationship. And this guy saying, oh, the only reason why we're doing this is because of you. You act much older than you are. It's because of me that you have success. So I want to ask you this. I'm going to play a little bit more of this, but I want to ask you, I'm going to leave you with this, the last bridge kind of chorus of this. What did you think when you first heard this song? Now, looking back over two decades later, what do you think of it now? I was one of those people who just loved and still love Alanis Morissette that I was just like, this song is interesting. I really love it. And then when you kind of pull back the different layers, it's more of an insight into what she was thinking. So I'm going to leave you with that. And once again, if you're a fan of music, make sure that you subscribe, like, rate, review this show. And if you want to support the show and you really like the extra bits of tidbits, if you will, information, you could join me on Patreon. You can easily go to www.originaldial.com. But I'm going to leave you with a little bit more of the song Hands Clean and with my theme song, Iconography. My name is James Rodriguez. Thank you so much for listening. Here's a little bit more of Hands Clean Alanis Morissette. See you on the flip side. Just make sure you don't tell on me, especially to members of your family. We best keep this to ourselves and not tell any members of our inner posse. I wish I could tell the world, cause you're such a pretty thing when you're done up properly. I might want to marry you one day if you watch that weight and you keep your firm body. Special shout out to Don, Susie, Katie, Mike, Paula, Pete. See you on the flip side.